And let's pray before we do so. Our Father, we pray that you would take your eternal truths and that you would write them on our eternal hearts. We might know eternal salvation in Christ Jesus our Lord. Teach us your ways, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 30, this is the holy inerrant word of God. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for, the, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, the Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. With the announcement this morning and with taking the Lord's table this morning, we can't deal with everything that is touched upon in these verses, but I want to address what is the significant things in these verses. We're told that a man came to Jesus. We're not given a lot of details at the very beginning of this passage about him. Luke will tell us in his gospel that this man was a ruler. We find out at the end of this passage that this man was quite rich. And so, many of us have come to know this account as the account of the rich young ruler. And many of your Bibles have that as a preface or as a kind of introductory to this chapter. This is about the rich young ruler. And he comes to Jesus with a good question. It's a good question. He wants to know how to get eternal life. Our first point this morning, let us notice that a person can look spiritual, 
person can look spiritual, but they can be very far from God. We see that with this young man. This young man, he desires the right thing, but he desires the right thing in the wrong way, and that makes all the difference here. He asks, what deeds must I do to inherit eternal life? He's willing to do to secure eternal life. Just name it, Jesus, and I'll go out and I'll do it. I think most of us probably would have liked the rich young ruler if we had met him. My guess is that we probably would have liked him even more than we would have liked the disciples if we had met the rich young ruler. He was respectable. He was refined. He was successful. He understood the Scriptures. He understood that the Scriptures were authoritative. He not only understood that they were authoritative, but he understood that they were to be a rule for his living. He was to live his life by them. He was, in essence, what we might call a good man. We might even call him a very good man. He looks the part. He desires the right things, but he's far from heaven. In fact, he is far from good. And there's warning for us here. It doesn't hit us initially. We, we think pretty well of a man asking questions such as this that looks good like this. I was thinking this week of the contrasting response that we have of Simon Magus, that magician in Acts chapter 8, you'll remember Simon Magus sees the apostles laying hands on people, and as the apostles are laying hands on people, the Spirit comes upon those people. And, and Simon Magus sees this, and he desires to have that ability. He wants to be able to lay hands on people and see the Spirit go upon people. Now, we can make all kinds of judgments about Simon Magus, and we can jump to the conclusion that he wanted this for ill reasons or wrong reasons because he was a magician. But there's nothing there in Acts 8 that would tell us that it was for wrong intentions that he desired this. It could be very well that Simon Magus wanted to be able to lay hands on people to give them the Spirit for the right reasons. He wanted the, the ability to be able to see the Spirit come upon them. don't know. What we do know is that he offers money to the apostles for this power to give the Spirit to whom he desired. And we hear that and we recoil. Give money so that you can give the Spirit. Peter's response doesn't shock us in Acts 8 there. He says to Simon, he says, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. And then he says, Your heart is not right before God. And we say, Amen. You can't obtain the gift of God with money. But then we barely flinch. When someone thinks they can obtain God Himself with their works. If you can't obtain the gift of God with money, then you surely can't obtain God Himself with your mere works. 
As if God could be bought by our weak and feeble and sin-stained doings. This man is seeking to make God a debtor. As if he could obligate God to, to give eternal life to him by what he did. That is the height of folly. That shows us the height of our wickedness. That we think we could make God our debtor. And owe us something for what we did for him. And say with Peter, your heart is not right before God. May your works perish with you. It's quite possible to be spiritual and yet be far from God. It's quite possible to desire salvation, to desire eternal life, to feel something about God and be very far from God. Second, notice that self-righteousness blinds a person to their need for God's grace. Self-righteousness blinds a person to their need for God's grace. Jesus points out this error in a very subtle way as He answers the rich young ruler's question. He says, why do you ask me what is good? There is only one who is good. Some will accuse Jesus here of denying his divinity, that he is saying that he himself is not good. That's not what Jesus is doing here. He's not denying his own intrinsic goodness. He's not denying his own deity. He's simply pointing out the lack of thought that this young man has exercised as he's come to Jesus with flattery. In fact, he's awakening the rich young man from his dreaming back to reality. There's only one who is good, he says. You know that. The Scriptures teach that. It's God. All men are born into this world fallen. As Paul will say, there is no one who does good. No, not even one. But this man is blind. He's blinded by his own sinfulness. May you and I not be blind to our own sinfulness. It's a good place to be, to be able to say with the Apostle Paul that I am chief among sinners. If you can't say that, then you are blinded. We should all be able to say that I am the worst sinner I know. Too often, I think we're more concerned about those whose sin shines the brightest when it's often those who possess a dim view of their own sinfulness, who are in the greatest danger. Their sin doesn't shine as brightly. Their, their self-righteousness does. It looks good from afar, but it is far from good. There's a pit that this man is in. He is in a pit with the absence of light. He is so conditioned by his own darkness that he can't see his own darkness. So we have a dim view of our own personal sinfulness are in the blackest hole we can possibly dwell in. In the 1700s at Oxford, there was a, a club that was started there at Oxford. It had three very famous people that helped start it, and then it had a handful of others. The three famous people were John and Charles Wesley and 
than George Whitfield. John and Charles Wesley and George Whitfield, arguably, maybe uh, Jonathan Edwards is the only one that could be argued otherwise, but arguably they are three of the most important people that the Lord used in the first great awakening. And these three, along with others, started this holy club, and they were extraordinary men, but in part this was their problem. As members of this club, they were rigorous. They practiced early morning devotions. They got up before dawn, before any of the other students, to pour over the Word and in prayer. They regimented their entire day, their entire life was exacting each and every day where they exercised discipline upon their life, where they sought not to waste a single moment or a single thought. They would fast every Wednesday and Friday. They would take the entire Saturday to prepare for the Lord's Day. On the Lord's Day, they would, every Lord's Day, they would take the sacrament. Every night, they would go to bed and they would keep a diary and they re- re- would record every stray thought they had, every stray action that they did. They devoted themselves to going down with any spare time that they had to serving at a prison and serving at a poorhouse with the children there. And then they took all of their resources that they had, anything that they could pull together, and they would give money to help those inmates and to help those children. And all of this they did, seeking to to honor God, supposedly for the sake of honoring God. And yet, to a man, they didn't know God. They didn't know Him. Not a single one of them. None were good. And none that they did was good. This rich man is not good. And nothing that he has done is good. But Jesus doesn't harp on it here. He is a phenomenal teacher. So he leads the man to come to this conclusion himself. He he tells him the way to eternal life, he says, is to keep the commandments. Fulfill the law. And if you fulfill it all without fail, then you will inherit eternal life. Well, that sounds like good news. Sign me up, Jesus. So the man asks, which ones? Isn't that always the question? When it's the law that hangs over you, it's always which ones and how much. You ask any Muslim, you ask any Jehovah's Witness, you ask any Mormon, you ask any Roman Catholic, which ones must I still do? And how much? Jesus' response is interesting. He responds with the second table of the law. He mentions the fifth commandment. He mentions the sixth commandment. He mentions the seventh commandment. He mentions the eighth commandment. And he mentions the ninth commandment. He mentions those five. But he doesn't mention the first four. And he doesn't mention the last one. Why? Because he knows this man's heart. He knows that this man is self-righteous to the core. And it's absolutely easy to convince ourselves that we fulfilled the 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, and ninth commandments. We can convince ourselves of that. It's a lot harder to convince yourself that you fulfilled the 1st through the 4th commandments and the 10th commandment. So Jesus gently leads him down the path of his own folly. 
the young man hears about the fifth through the ninth commandments, and he says, I've kept all these. Fifth through ninth, check. No grace needed here. And the confident, self-righteous question follows. What do I still lack? And Jesus could have said to him, you lack everything. Everything. But he doesn't. He knows the man's heart, and so he responds, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. It's the clincher. The man's asked for one task to do, so Jesus gives him one task to do, and he can't do it. He won't do it. Why? Because man can't have a divided heart. And his heart has already been conquered by something else. And it's not God. It's his riches. And he won't give them up. He couldn't keep the first commandment. Have no other gods before me. And he walks away sorrowful. It leads us to our third point. Let us notice that an idol in the heart leads to great sorrow. The word Jesus uses here for perfection is a word that takes us back to the Old Testament Scriptures and it speaks of being fully devoted in your heart to God, fully obedient to God in all of your actions. And here was a man who Jesus knows was willing to be outwardly righteous, but he had not tended to the garden of his own heart. And so Jesus lays this out before him. This is what you must do to be fully obedient, fully trusting of God and to demonstrate it. An idol sits there and Jesus knows it and God will not allow us to have a divided heart. That old slogan, you are what you eat. No, you aren't, you aren't what you eat. You are what you love. And this man loves his riches. The heart of the matter is that the heart is what matters. Whatever takes a place of prominence in our hearts directs our lives. And if it is anything other than Christ, it is an affront to Christ. And so he tells him, go sell everything. Is Jesus telling all of us as his disciples to go and to sell everything? No, that isn't his point. In fact, the text emphasizes that what he is doing, the emphasis is placed upon follow me. What Jesus is doing is saying that nothing can rival me. Not your wealth, not anything else. For you and I, it could be a myriad of other things. It could be family, it could be work, it could be recreation, it could be health, it could be retirement, it could be a wealth of things. This man, he desires eternal life, but you notice he doesn't desire it enough. 
And what he can't seem to see is that what he has given his heart to will lead him to eternal sadness. He, he goes away sorrowful, Matthew tells us. And so it will be for all who walk away from Jesus, no matter the reason. Jesus wants him to see, and he asks you and I to see, that there is a greater delight all that the world has to offer you. There is a greater delight. This man couldn't see it. Follow me, Jesus says. He is the greatest possible delight. C.S. Lewis wrote a, a wonderful little essay about being in a tool shed one day. He said as he was standing in that tool shed one day, a, a beam of light uh, came through the crack in the door, and there he was in the darkness of this tool shed, and that, that beam of sunlight came through the crack in the door, and he was looking at that beam of sunlight, and as he looked at that beam of sunlight, he could see little flecks of dust in it, and little particles in that beam of sunlight. He said, but then he moved himself to be in that beam of sunlight. And he allowed that beam of sunlight to strike his eye. And when it did, everything changed. Because now he was looking through the crack in the door and what he could see was a tree. And what he could see were green leaves on that tree. And what he could see beyond that tree was a sun shining in all of its brightness thousands of miles away. And he said, that's the difference between looking at and looking along. He says, it's like a young man who falls in love with a young lady. And when he falls in love with her, everything changes. All of life changes. But there is some scientist that is looking at this young man's experience from the outside, and he says that entire affair is simply a biological stimulus that's happening. Well, that's looking at instead of looking along. There are many, maybe some in this room or online or in the fellowship hall, that spend a lot of time looking at God. Spend a lot of time looking at Christ, but not looking alone. This rich young ruler, he is looking at God. He is looking at the commandments. He is looking at the religion. He is looking at the faith. He's not looking alone. The Holy Club members began to see this after their years of self-righteous works, years. The first was Whitfield, who discovered he was but looking at God. He was reading an old book by Henry Skugel called The Life of God and the Soul of Man. And as he read it, he said this. He said, God showed me that I must be born again or be damned. I learned that I may go to church, say his prayers, receive the sacrament, and yet not be a Christian. 
How did my heart rise and shudder like a poor man that is afraid to look into his account books lest he should find himself a bankrupt? But he cried out to God in prayer. He said, Lord, if I am not a Christian or if I am not a real one, for Jesus Christ's sake, show me what Christianity is that I may not be damned at last. And then he said, God showed me. From reading a few lines further, he read this. True religion is a union of the soul with God and Christ formed within us. And he uses this language. A ray of divine light instantaneously darted in upon my soul. And from that moment, but not till then, did I know that I must become a new creature. He saw his need for God's grace. And he repented of his self-righteous works. Charles Wesley will follow soon after. He will be affected as he's reading Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians. And he'll write of the night of his conversion. He writes this, My temper for the rest of the day was mistrust of my own great, but before unknown weakness. He says, I went to bed still sensible of my weakness, yet confident in Christ's perfection. He went to bed that night as a believer. Just a couple of days later, he will write a hymn, and many believe that the hymn that he wrote a couple of days later to celebrate his conversion was, And Can It Be? But maybe the best is John Wesley. Wesley, after years of preaching the gospel, preaching about Christ, realizes he was unconverted. He's reading Martin Luther's preface to his commentary on Romans. And he says, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And assurance was given to me that He had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. He realized this wasn't just good news for others. This wasn't just religious fact. This wasn't just something to look at. This was something to look along. He died for me. For my sins. For my soul. There is a world of difference. An eternity of difference in looking at and looking along. And the rich, young ruler can't see it. So finally, let us see the blessing that we can only seek and that only comes from God. The response of the disciples fascinates me. They are incredulous. Matthew says they were astonished. 
They're looking at this man. They're looking at the righteous man that he is on the outside. They're looking at the way God has blessed him with wealth. And they say, then who can be saved? This seems like an impossibility. If that man can't be saved, then who can be saved? It's a good question. And Jesus gives the answer. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. What man cannot do, God does. What man cannot give, God grants. What man cannot attain, God secures. Salvation is by His grace. It's a gift. It's a gift that you can just receive. That's it. Just receive. Does this mean that it doesn't cost us at all? No. Jesus bids every man to come and die. Die to sin. Die to the world. Die to self. And then we shall enjoy this blessing upon blessing. We see that as he speaks about it here in the text. And Peter picks up on this. Peter, lovable Peter, he's always ready with something. And he says, well, look, Jesus, look at us, Jesus, see, look at how much we've given up for you. What do we get? Jesus, oh, so gentle with his people. He doesn't say, oh, Peter, you've given up very little compared to what I'll give up. He doesn't say, oh, Peter... You're concerned about the wrong thing. He comforts him. He says, yes, discipleship costs you. And yet, you will never lose anything. You see, he's taking us back to the very back of this passage. God is never a debtor. He is never a debtor to his people. And so whatever it is that you give up for Christ, it is never lost. It is only surpassed. God is never a debtor to His people. He says they will reign with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. We see this echoed throughout the New Testament that this will be true of all believers. We will sit enthroned with Christ in the heavens over the new heavens and the new earth. That we will even judge the angels and the archangels. Blessing upon blessing. As Paul quotes Isaiah in 1 Corinthians, No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. I wonder this morning if that's true for you. Not the person sitting next to you. Not the person sitting next to the, across the room. Not the person that's going through your mind that's a family member or that's a neighbor or that's a coworker. My question is, is this true for you? Don't you dare walk away from the service without searching your own heart. Is this true for me? Is my heart Christ? 
Or is there an idol that sits there? Is my life Christ? Or does something else own my life? Was Christ's blood shed for me? Were my sins covered over by that blood shed upon the tree? You. Me. There's a big difference between looking at and looking alone. It's an eternal difference. And if you're looking alone, and all of those things are true of you, ah, then there is blessing upon blessing for all of eternity. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for that he lived a life for us and died a life for us. That we might know you and that we might have the greatest of all pleasures. Union with you, our Maker, our Creator, with our very Redeemer for all of eternity. If there are any that are listening even now in this room, in the fellowship hall online, that do not know Christ as their Savior and their Lord, pray that you would open the eyes of their heart, that they would find that He is more lovely than anything in this world, that He is worth selling all things for to buy the treasure that is in that field, that He is the pearl of costliest price. And that He is worth all that we would surrender. May He receive the glory and the praise. And You, Father, and You, O Spirit. In Christ's name, Amen.